Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin. Thanks, Tom. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Podcast. Uh, today, uh, we have a little bit uh, of a different format for you. Uh, historically, as you know, our podcasts have really been thematic, focused on you know, different parts of financial education and, and different topics uh, that we hope to give a little bit more insight into for our clients, our, re our uh, listeners, uh, in general, and uh, today we're we're, we're going to leverage off of the uh, the enormous amount of positive feedback that we've gotten about the podcast and its uh, and its format, and we're going to uh, try to do uh, our normal quarterly update, um, which we usually write in uh, you know in, in hard copy format and, and distribute uh, both via LinkedIn and also uh, via email uh, to all of you. We're gonna uh, we're gonna try to do that here today. Um, in a podcast instead, we figured um, as many folks have have given us feedback that they love listening to the podcast in their car or, you know, while they're taking a walk or whatever the case may be, that, you know, asking them to sit down and read six pages um, that we kind of thoughtfully put together, maybe we could kind of make that more concise and a little bit more fun and do it in a, in a podcast format. So I'm really excited today to be joined by uh, Adam Compton, head of MWM Asset Management and Adam Abramson, head of MWM High Net Worth uh, Wealth Management Business. And uh, we're going to have kind of a, a conversation, fireside chat, whatever whatever you want to call it, uh, to get through uh, some of our thoughts about what's going on in the first half of the year, uh, the, uh, the, the main items going on right now in the U.S. markets and in the economy, uh, and then give you some updates on uh, our MWM asset management strategies, uh, and how we sort of feel the market's going to shape up for the remainder of this year and next year. Uh, so before we do that, and before I, I turn it over to Adam and Adam, uh, I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to to do a plug with you all. Um, David Rubenstein, who is the one of the co-founders of Carlisle, um, wrote a book called How to Invest: Masters on the Craft. Um, it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I would recommend it to anyone who has an interest or fascination in investing of any kind. Um, basically, what David did was he went out and interviewed uh, many of the of the world experts in different areas of investing. So fixed income, public equity, real estate, private wealth, uh, endowments, hedge funds, et cetera. Um, he interviewed some incredible names. I think it's you know it's, it's over twenty uh, people that he interviews in here. Um, and talks to them really about some of the what, what they think some of the common traits are um, for great long-term investing, and uh, it, it's a it's a really interesting read. You know, I love biographies, so I love to read kind of the stories behind how a lot of these folks got started. Um, but but at the beginning of the book, uh, Dave, David does sort of a comparative analysis, which you would expect from a you know a, an analytical guy like him. Uh, he does a comparative analysis and says that he you know he found many. Uh, common traits among these investors. But the one he said is the most, uh, he, the single most important um, is, is one that he calls conventional wisdom. 
And in that um, in that piece of his analysis, he says that one of the easiest paths in life and in investing is to accept and follow conventional wisdom. Why attract atten attention to yourself by going against a a conventional wisdom? But great investors don't accept conventional wisdom. They see what others do not, and they're prepared to take the risk of being wrong. Um, by going against conventional wisdom. And he says that no other characteristic of great investors is as important to their success as their willingness to ignore conventional wisdom. So, you know, one of the things I hope we 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 do uh we we do, and I and I know we challenge ourselves to do it all the time, is to is to challenge conventional wisdom. And, and if I was writing this piece um for you all this quarter, that would probably be the title of it, which would be conventional wisdom or or bucking conventional wisdom or bucking the trend um part of what's what's difficult right now is actually figuring out what conventional wisdom is uh because there's a lot of debate going on about where markets are headed where the economy's headed uh and uh you know wh where where the elements that kind of drive that are going whether it's interest rate policy inflation jobs growth etc so we're going to try to dive into some of that we're going to try to do some of it um, by sharing with you what the conventional wisdom might be and then what our feelings uh, might be alongside that and then some areas where I think we we have a, a different view than what what may be out there uh, more popularly. So um, before we move on, let me uh, let me say hi to Adam Compton and Adam Abramson. It's good to have you guys here. Michael. Great to be on the podcast again and, and uh, looking forward to it. So uh, Adam Abramson, I'll turn it over to you for the uh, for the first questions. Yeah, so um, one of the things we're seeing this year is, you know, you see a fairly resilient stock market and there's a growing chorus of people thinking that maybe we're going through a series of uh, recessions by sector, but that they are because they are not happening at the same time that this that the economy while slowing is going to have a soft landing and not a hard landing or recession. I, I'm curious what both of your thoughts are around that and, and and that scenario as we go into the second half of the year? Well, I'll, I'll start and then I'll let um, Adam Compton uh, take over from me uh, with any additional thoughts. You know, I, I think uh, this concept of a rolling recession is gaining more and more traction. Uh, you know, we started talking about it, I would say probably, you know, three, four months ago um, when it seemed like uh, there were some recessionary aspects to the behavior of uh, corporate CEOs in different industries toward the tail end of 2022, um, and but not for everyone. You know, as 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 our clients, I'm sure, um, experienced and as, as we certainly experienced the the while everything was down in 2022 from a stock performance perspective, you know, certain industries performed better than others, and you know, some of that kind of lends to this idea that potentially we could be going through a rolling recession, meaning that um, challenges or headwinds would hit industries at different times. And therefore, we may not have one aggregate recession where everything is, is, is down or every industry is challenged, but more of these episodic um, um, occurrences. And you know, I, I think that, that some of that, some of what makes that make sense to us or to me is sort of why, why are we in this position to begin with? And part of that is because obviously the, the biggest part of it is that the Fed raised rates at a historically, you know, quick pace um, during the course of 2022, and you know, also we'll probably do some more here in 2023. Um, but but 
the reasons for them raising rates was a little less common than you normally see in a recessionary environment. Typically, the Fed comes in to raise rates when inflation is being driven by organic growth and organic spending right, related to that growth. So the economy overheats, it starts growing at an unsustainable level, people start spending too much, money you know, becomes less valuable, and therefore um, you're, you're in a position where the Fed needs to tighten and bring monetary um, and bring money supply and monetary policy um, to bear. This case was inflation being driven by, by, in our view, characteristics that occurred that were temporary based on what was going on, based on the reactions that we all had to the pandemic. So you had supply chain issues and labor market issues that really stemmed from what was happening, uh, what, what happened during the pandemic that we knew at some point would rationalize themselves, right? So, you know, China opened their economy back up, manufacturing started again, more supplies got out there. there you know, everybody, anybody who was looking to buy a new car in 21 or 22 was paying a premium over, over, over the sticker price because of how hard it was and how scarce the supply of new cars were. And now we're, we're seeing uh, data points from our, our friends over at Evercore ISI, who you know we rely on for a lot of our macro research, that uh, Mannheim auctions and, and new and used car dealers are now reporting you know massive declines in car prices, over, over inventoried new car lots, et cetera, et cetera. So we knew at some point it would rationalize itself. Whether it was gonna happen before or with or without, the Fed raising rates, you know, we'll never know. But um, now we've got, we're in a situation where those things are rectifying themselves. The Fed has raised rates. And so, you know, the impact of those supply chain and labor shortages varied between industries. And so, you know, you saw housing kind of go first um, and where, where housing prices took it on the chin when rates started going up because mortgages became untenable. And, you know, there were articles here in, in Atlanta around yeah. the fact that there was no availability of, um, of of rental housing supply, then it moved from housing into technology, and we saw a lot of the technology CEOs doing a lot of the things you do in a recession: cutting costs, cutting labor, um, and 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 as those things occurred, you know, the, the, their stock prices, their businesses obviously went through, you know, a, a bit of a, of a of a lull, and and now you're sort of seeing those early, um, you know, those early industries that were hit. You're seeing them, you know, start to bottom. Maybe earnings even starting to bottom. Adam Adam Compton can talk more about that. And then, you know, move to manufacturing. It probably right now inside of retail. And so, you know, you're seeing some evidence that that's, um, you know, that that's what's occurring um, in the economy today. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, I think we've seen a a, a lot of of this already happen. You know, you, you saw the housing drawdown. Um, you know, the goods economy is now stabilizing with, you know, Europe and China kind of back online. The tech sector is steadying out again. Headcount is normalizing. You know, spending and real incomes are stabilizing again. Um, and so, you know, you, could, you can look at this and see how that, how that rolling recession argument could have, you know, could have some legs, you know, going into, into next year. And, and I think you're also seeing when we talk later about kind of what pundits are saying about what the market's going to do, the probabilities have started to move. You know, the, the probabilities were huge. We we're going to be in a recession this year, and now those probabilities have changed dramatically. So I'll I'll stop there and, and hand it back to Adam Compton to see if he's got any any thoughts to add. Which he yeah, no, does. 
I usually do. You can't stop me, Michael. Um, so the yeah. So the only things I would add here on this subject are just a couple of things. One is we still are watching for some lagged impacts. So I totally agree with Michael. Some sectors have already gotten hit and even started to recover. Technology being one, technology was way overspending because they had a lot of you know big bumps in revenues during COVID, and that was sort of another you know temporary effect that was probably overestimated for a while. So they overspent that they cut budgets and we've seen the headcounts come down and we've seen the earnings start to improve there, even with, you know, not all revenues, you know, being super strong in technology for, as a sector, the revenues aren't, you know, that great yet. Although some sectors like AI are obviously picking up, um, but much better spending is leading to a recovery there. And then I would say housing, you know, we've seen some very modest declines in housing prices, but the massive appreciation has dropped off. There's just not enough housing supply out there that we really could see a lot of downside to housing, except in a pretty extreme downward economic scenario, which, you know, isn't our highest probability um, at this point. The, the lag effects that I do still worry about are just, again, you know, as, as Chairman Powell likes to say, long and variable lags from raising interest rates. We have over 785 billion of junk bonds coming due over, you know, the next two to three years that, you know, are going to have to face a lot higher interest rate environment. Um, and obviously commercial real estate with office space is a sector where everyone can see the wall coming there as these bonds come due. And that's going to have some pretty negative knock on effects in the economy. So, you know, all in the, the probabilities of a recession have clearly been um, declining, you know, but we're not completely out of the woods yet. So we're, we're staying kind of cautious because of that. Absolutely. Adam, kind of sticking with you. So you, you mentioned commercial real estate and some of the challenges there. It seems like it was a lot longer ago, but in the first quarter of this year, we had a full on banking crisis with Silicon Valley Bank going under as well as a few others. Are, are we done with that crisis? Is that in the past or are there still going to be lingering effects or are there, is there more to come? And, and, I should say, and, I, and I should say before this, Adam, for those who don't know, is a, is a former lead financials analyst as well as a former banking regulator. So in a very good position to, to answer this question. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's, so the answer is, you know, I would say the pressure is easing. We're not where we were in March, certainly, because there was a ton of pressure on the banking industry. But it's probably a little too early to sound the all clear and just pile into the banks, particularly with the Fed still tightening, right? Because that's what precipitated the crisis to begin with. Um, you know, just looking at the indicators I look at, if you look at the Fed's borrowing window, you know, we saw that massive spike, you know, in March and early April as the banks all piled into the Fed funding as people were pulling deposits out. Um, and we got to over $400 billion at the two different windows the Fed provided, which was, you know, well over the $120, $130 billion peak we saw during the financial crisis, right? So it gives you an idea of the scale of sort of liquidity worries. That has started to trend down into the $300 billion range. So it's still, you know, large and something to watch, but at least it's trending in the right direction. Um, when you think about sort of knock-on impacts, again, that's sort of lagging things we have to watch for. Banks are definitely underwriting um, more closely and tightly right now. That'll be an ongoing drag for the economy. And that's, you know, that's not even necessarily because they think credit risk is going up. It's a tougher funding environment, right? So if you're, you're a bank 
you know, even if you're getting good deposit funding now, you're paying a lot more for it. So most banks are showing or expecting margins to roll over um, across the balance of this year because the deposit funding gets more and more expensive. In that environment, they're just going to be more careful and slower on making more loans because it's harder to make a good profit when your funding costs are going up so much. So, you know, I'd say let's keep an eye on what goes on in funding and keep an eye on the economy. My real worry now isn't the funding side, at least at this point, it's more do we go into a recession and then you face a credit cycle. Um, and obviously you don't want to be in a bunch of uh, levered cyclical companies like banks at that point. You know, that's not something we would tend to do anyway, given how we build portfolios around you know, companies with low leverage um, and sort of in less commoditized businesses. But, you know, at the margin, we're going to keep an eye on whether we do increase our exposure to higher quality banks, uh, et cetera. Um, but right now we're sort of keeping an eye on things. But Adam, let, let's let's stick there for just a minute, because, you know, I think some of that when it comes to the, the banking issue, the issues with liquidity and credit, um, you know, also, uh, kind of leads us to do something we should do, which is let, let's talk a little bit about the bear case. You know, we just laid out, you know, a, a, a non-conventional, um, but but relatively uh, constructive view of where things are headed. But there is, you know, there is, there is a, you know, there is a bear case out there. Um, you know, my, my, you know, my, my concise interpretation of that bear case is that issues from liquidity being pulled out of the market is some of the issues like you talked about with the repricing of commercial real estate, the Fed getting overzealous and even you know continuing to push on the brakes and raising rates, you know over over tightening, if you will. And you know again, our friends at ISI say that you know it takes up to a year for an interest rate increase to be fully absorbed into the market. And so we've had you know however many we've had, and 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 clearly it hasn't been a year for all of that to be absorbed. So any new increases. You know, are, are are probably it's probably hard to know what the overall impact of all this tightening is going to be yet. So you know that in and of itself is a risk. Um, but you know, from a purely market performance perspective, a lot of people are saying that um, you know those things could have an impact. But even you know, even even without them, that prices are are really high, and that you know we we've had kind of a bounce back inside of a bear market rally, and that these fundamentals will play out into a full-blown recession sometime next year, um, and that the market pain could be significant. And we can talk more about this, the market part of it, and you know, later on in, in, in our in our podcast. Um, but you know, but but one big part of this that people keep pointing at is valuation, you know, and so um, you know, I think we should have a discussion. We can do it now or we can wait until, you know, until later on when we talk more about markets. But you know, I, I do think that 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 it would be great, really interesting for our, our listeners to have a, a real conversation about valuation. And because as we all know, you know, valuation is in the eye of the beholder. You know, everyone who writes, whether it's in the Wall Street Journal or they show up on CNBC, has a different measure, it seems, of what valuation is. You know, Robert Schiller obviously uses um, the CAPE. Uh, John Hussman uses a, a different measure. Warren Buffett uses a different measure, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I think I think to to kind of to kind of knock that bear case which is again primarily being driven by valuation. Um, let's have a discussion about different valuation methodologies. Sure. Um, you know, I think a good starting point is, you know, given given the way we build our our valuation um, framework, 
you know, we look at different interest rate scenarios, different economic scenarios. We look at different time periods across history. We, we try to probability weight those um, and look at a combined sort of implied valuation framework. And where that gets us right now is markets look a little expensive given where trailing earnings have been, right? So, um, you know, we've been in an environment where earnings have been coming down. Like so far in 2023, um, earnings are down year over year, both in the first quarter and the second quarter, right? So um, in that context, the evaluations that a lot of people look at with the trailing earnings or trailing cash flows have started to look moderately expensive. Um, you could try to pick off more expensive sectors. Maybe you're between one and two standard deviations expensive in that context. Um, but really, it comes down to what's your forward due, right? So with technology stocks, you know, yeah, on a trailing number, we just talked about the fact that they had pretty disappointing numbers. You go back a year ago because they were spending too much money. They've started to correct that. Um, so in that context, we could see a, a pretty significant improvement in earnings and cash flows, kind of X what's going on in the economy you know, over the four or 12 months. So yeah, on a trailing basis, you could see some sectors that look, you know, moderately one to two standard deviations expensive. I, I couldn't find anything really three plus, which is sort of the red flag in my mind that statistically I start to get massively worried about valuations. Um, and again, a lot of it's gonna go to your forward view on earnings. To me, um, what's gonna be interesting and challenging maybe a little bit in the second half of this year for flipping from expectations being down year over year what I call the hockey stick, which is second half of the year, earnings expectations um, are to be up year over year, right? So they're gonna companies are gonna need to deliver on that. Um, part of it's probably gonna have to come through margins because you know we've been margins for the S and P peaked in late 2021, and we've had declining margins since then. Um, it made sense because all the margins, you know, as Michael was alluding to before, we were in this world where people couldn't produce enough goods. So in that kind of world, you could price up, you know, the S&P had record margins. Those have been working their way down. So the question will really be in my mind, do those at least stabilize? In which case, you know, to me, valuations aren't that worrisome. Do they continue to head down, which is certainly more likely in a recession, right? Because you're going to cut aggregate demand. That's probably going to bring margins down some more. And then we have some downside further. You know, right now, the street's expecting about 220 in earnings for the S&P. For this year, that's drifted down uh, across the last year from about 230 to 220. So it's a down year so far. For next year, the street's looking for something like 240 for the S&P, right? So um, not massive growth. So I don't view that as challenging, but we've got to see the trend in margins reverse. Um, if we don't, then you know mar markets look moderately expensive to me. Um, and obviously, if we get a recession, uh, a little bit more downside there. I, 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 oh, sorry. No. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head from one, for, for, for lots of perspectives, but you know, one that I wanna make sure that, that people pay attention to is, you know, valuation is only as good as it is at the very moment that you do it, right? The, the real way to, to buy, to be successful as an investor in anything, whether you're buying public companies, private companies, real estate, et cetera, is you have to try to predict the future value of something. And you know, that's what we try to do. You know, we, we, we had a, a long conversation yesterday about one of our portfolio companies and where we think the earnings and the cash flows are gonna be in 2024, 2025, 2026. And while that that company, which happened to be Disney, which we were talking about, today is is in every financial newspaper being talked about as being you know overpriced because they're 
they've got a, a, a legacy linear network business that, you know, margins are are not great or whatever the case may be, you know, and how that how ultimately their their profit and, and earnings and revenues are going to shake out. If we look out, you know, two, three, four, five years, you know, that's what I what what I want to look at when I look at the price to say, okay, today, yeah, the stock may be expensive, but if 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 we're if we're even 75% right about our expectations about what the company's going to do in three, four, or five years, then we're really actually buying at a really attractive valuation based on where we think it's going. And there's another great book called Where the Money Is by Adam Cecil. And he talks about this in great detail about and specifically he talks about how, you know, an investor like Warren Buffett, I'll call it Warren Buffett 1.0, could have never gotten his arms around owning Apple, which is now his largest position. But, you know, if you look at it from this framework where, you know, you could extrapolate out what Apple's cash flows and earnings were going to look at look like two, three, five, seven years down the road, even a value conscious investor can get their arms around what those valuations look like. So, you know, I think a big part of what we try to do that doesn't have anything to do with Wall Street research or any of that is to try to model out where we think a business is going from a revenue growth and an earnings growth standpoint and buy based on what that future looks like. Doesn't mean we're always going to be right. You know, we're not. We're going to make mistakes. But, um, but, but that's the way I think you have to keep valuation in check. And so, when we read about in a newspaper or see on CNBC someone coming out and pounding the table and saying, you know, valuations are as high as they've ever been, and et cetera, et cetera, just remember that's at a point in time we're not doing, we're not making any decisions based on where a market in general or an index in aggregate is trading. We're making it based on the value of a particular business and what we see as the future potential of that business. So on that theme, is is based on what we're seeing from a macro standpoint and what you just said about kind of growth businesses, are, are we seeing a, a, a backdrop, a macro backdrop that's changing in a way that's going to be more favorable to, towards you know, quality companies, quality growth stocks in the medium to long term at this point? You know, again, you know, I, like I said, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get stuck in a, you know, this time is different type of a syndrome because, you know, we, that never works. Um, but, you know, I do think that there are, you know, that that while again we are certainly uh, paying attention to the bear case and we're certainly paying attention to, you know, certain concerning looking things like Adam Compton talked about, and you know, you can talk about the inverted yield curve, which typically leads to a recession, etc. There are a lot of metrics out there that we tell you, you know. We're not out of the woods yet, and we certainly don't believe that that's the case. And we'll talk more about kind of our positioning and and how we're we're addressing that in our portfolios later on. Um, but you do have to you do have to think about the fact that you know we are now we have gone from an inflationary environment to a disinflationary environment. I mean, we've gone from a CPI that touched ten percent at one point and just reported at three percent, and you know probably headed back to you know the Fed's comfort zone of two percent, you know, in the not too distant future. And what that also means is you're also in a yield peaking phase. And if you look back at history, anytime we've been in a disinflationary and yield peaking phase, you know, that has been a very, very positive backdrop for growth, high quality growth businesses that are supported by superior fundamentals, high barriers to entry, strong balance sheets, you know, significant returns on invested capital, strong secular growth trends, strong cash flows, you know, and, and profits that support usually a premium, but not, you know, outsized valuation. And so, you know, we, we've talked about 
in many quarterly letters and in and in and in different uh, client conference calls or in, in at different events. You know that that not only do we consider first of all you know, those characteristics that I just mentioned are the characteristics that we look at for any business that we buy. Period. Full stop. Um, but but one sector obviously that that has dominated um, in this in this high quality growth um, phase, if you will, is technology, right? And 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 you know we 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 are constantly you know asked and queried about our exposures to technology companies, um, and and truthfully, when you look at where we are today, and Adam you know alluded to it in his comment, Adam Compton alluded to, alluded to it in his comments. Uh, Technology stocks are way are different animals today than they were in 2000, 2001, even in 2006 and seven, because you have some of the strongest cash flow generating companies in the world in the technology space. You have companies that have balance sheets that in many cases are net cash, meaning that they have more cash than they have debt sitting on their balance sheets. And so, you know, when you when you are when you are faced with those kind of businesses and the 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 amount of value the end customer puts on the products that they are 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 buying from these companies because of productivity enhancements and lifestyle benefits um you know those these businesses have you know low labor costs and you know they're not that exposed to fluctuating raw material prices there are defensive aspects that you can see in owning some of these kind of businesses and and in an environment which which while Maybe disinflationary and maybe yield peaking. We're still going to be left in a world where you know growth is probably a little slower than we would like, and interest rates are probably a little higher than we would like. And so, in an environment like that, you want to be invested in businesses that have pricing power, and that and that where a higher interest rate environment isn't going to curtail their margins or you know be such a drag on their cash flows because they're an overlevered. Um, the industry and overlevered business. The other thing I think is important is is always important, and I know we talk about this a lot. And so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but um, you know, during the tech bubble, you know, these these companies were not earning, you know, were not did not have positive earnings. Were trading at you know incalculable valuations, and you know they did not hold up well. You know, as so as prices went up and fundamentals sort of were deteriorating, there was a disconnect. Today we're in a, in a completely different environment. This the the fundamentals are holding up well. The prices of the stocks, you know, got got curtailed dramatically last year, right? But when you look at how these these companies have performed, right, the performance has been astonishing, right? The margins for tech companies have been more than double the market average over the last decade. You know, tech revenues and earnings. Um, you know, have also exceeded the broader market over the, la the last several decades. And you know, that wasn't the case in the tech bubble. So, you know, I do think that, you know, we are set up in an environment where, you know, high quality growth stocks and, you know, a lot of those being technology names are, you know, positioned well. Yeah, I think one thing I'd want to add there, Michael, is, you know, to me, like, you're absolutely right. I, I heard a great stat a couple of weeks ago that, like, Oh, people are concerned because you know technology stocks are something like 25% of the S&P 500 market cap, and gee, that's so historically high. But they they pointed out that um, technology earnings were somewhere between 18 and 19% of S&P earnings, right? So 
you know, in that context, that's and given that these companies have better margins, better balance sheets, and better long-term growth rates, it's not that big of a stretch. So don't go out and look at statistics on like, gee, we're at peak technology exposure in the S&P and necessarily at least get really worried about it. And the other thing I wanted to say is just from a sort of analog to the tech bubble in 2000, to me, the analog this time was probably SPACs where you know tons of money was thrown at companies that didn't even know what they were investing in yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we saw so many of those turn out poorly because the, the money was spent on, uh, on buying companies that ultimately hadn't have an approved revenue model or profit model yet, right? So um, while we're always gonna be careful and make sure we're not getting over our skis, you know, I'm fairly comfortable that you know, the companies we own are great, great quality companies and regardless of what happens in the economy, um, we should be pretty well positioned for the long term. Makes sense. Um, to, 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 you know, the first half from an absolute standpoint was, was a very good first half. From a performance standpoint, it's easy to kind of to, to stop there and not look into it. But, you know, from our standpoint, we were, you know, while very pleased with where things were, we were doing some things to also protect against the uncertainty. So I'd love to hear some, you know, you know, you all go into some detail as far as, you know, what the first half, you know, you know, what produced returns, what we were doing and, 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 and to look at, you know, a little more in depth and as opposed to just the absolute numbers. Uh, uh, thanks, Adam. Um, yeah. So really, you know, we've been happy with our performance, especially since we did spend bought insurance effectively to protect against possible downside through both higher than normal cash levels and also index puts, which is sort of um, our two methodologies that we tend to use to try to protect against downside. We will tend to do index puts when volatility is low and we can buy the options on the cheap, right? So that's something we've tended to do, to do recently as the VIX has come down into the low teens. Um, but that said, you know, we've still kept a fair amount of cash there. So just putting all that in context, you know, looking across our three equity portfolios, uh, New Era has really stood out. Um, through yesterday, it's up 34.0% year to date, um, a touch ahead of its Rus- Russell 1000 growth benchmark. And that's despite over 600 basis points of hedging drag, which is a huge number, right? So, you know, but I don't mind that at all because part of our job here is to help protect against downside when we think it's significant risk. Uh, similarly, Dynamic Core, you know, it's shown a pretty respectable up 19.9% return um, through yesterday's close. Um, that's, you know, a, a touch ahead of the S&P 500 benchmark, and that's with over 200 basis points of hedging drag in that portfolio. And then uh, lastly, our sustainable income portfolio is up 11.5% through yesterday's close, which doesn't sound, you know, amazing in the context of the other two portfolios. But remember, that's sort of our you know, companies with lower growth and, um, you know, lower long-term prospects, but good cash flows and paying dividends. Um, so high cash flow portfolio. Um, and that's up 11.5% uh, with about 90 basis points of hedging drag. And that's well ahead. Actually, it's sort of the best relative performance because we're benchmarked against the Russell 1000 value there. And that's only up 6.7% year to date. So all in, we're pretty happy with performance. There's a lot of parts and pieces to that, so um, happy to discuss any of that that you guys want to go through. Adam, Adam, one of the things I know we talked about a lot, you know, kind of in the early part of the year, was the the fact that the, there was really no market breadth. You know, when, when I when I had when we were sending out first half reports, 
um, to our clients, uh, you know, second quarter, you know, first half reports. Um, we, uh, you know, I, I asked people in the email that we sent, do you know what the Magnificent Seven is? And no, it's not a Marvel movie. Uh, and and, and it, it referred to, it's essentially the FANG stocks plus NVIDIA and Tesla, you know, which have been, which drove a lot of the performance of indices, you know, in the first half of the year. But um, I know that we've started to see that breath kind of broaden out a little bit more. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, it, it, interestingly, you know, yes, we have technology exposure. Yes, we benefited from things like AI, and we could talk about that a little bit too. But um, we've seen actually really strong performance across some of our industrial exposures with companies like uh, Atlas Copco, um, you know, with some of our international exposures, um, Mercado Libre, which is an a online marketplace and payments company. Um, down in South America with market dominant positions there. Um, and, you know, other other companies that a lot of people probably don't think about day to day because they're not brand names, but even like Fanuc, which is a Japanese robotics company um, that's more industrial, you know, that's actually had decent performance too. So it's actually, you know, we've seen a few stocks where we've had struggles. Michael mentioned Disney. Um, but we've been really happy with the breadth of performance across the names we own. There's there's pretty broad um, strength there. And again, I think that goes back to, no, we don't go out and try to own a bunch of technology companies. We actually try to go out and own really good quality companies with good balance sheets, growth prospects, management teams, et cetera. And that's really tended to shine through in the, in the names we own. I mean, even... You know, we've been very underexposed to banks, but we've owned JP Morgan this year as one of the higher quality banks. And that's up, you know, 15% year to date uh, with the sector down pretty massively, right? So it, it goes to quality positioning can help even if you're in a sector that's struggling a lot. Makes sense. Um, I guess question for, for both of you guys. Um, as far as kind of a few themes, you know, Adam mentioned AI, but maybe let's start with with Russia, Ukraine, which kind of you know wanes as uh, as far as what you know what's in the news. But you know, we've seen some developments here. Anything material as far as impacts to markets or non-impacts to markets? What do we, what do things look like going forward there? You know, I, I know our clients have heard us talk about this a lot. You know, the the, the difference between signal and noise. Uh, you know, I. I, I if I was again, if I was writing this, I would have thrown the definition back in for folks. You know, knowing that you know, signal and noise is a con are really concepts from science and engineering, um, and it's really kind of a you know separating the noise out kind of creates more power or, or more clarity. Um, but uh, you know, the same thing kind of applies in investing. You know, we, we're always trying to find the things that we can quantify, the things that we can see clearly. Um, and I know that when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, you know, we've been we've been searching for what those signals are. There's a lot of noise. I mean, you know, you can um, you know you can read uh, till your heart's content about you know all the you know all the pot, the slippery politics and all the horrible and, and tragic humanitarian stories going on and, and the amount of of lives that have been lost and money that's been spent and um, you know it's it's terrible. But but when we sit back and actually look, you know, at a, a, a direct impact on the economy or on the markets. You know, the things that we were really looking at are twofold. One, you know, Russia is a large producer of oil. Ukraine's a larger, large producer of grain. And so, you know, if, if there was a disruption to either of those, 
um, you know, either of those materials, you know, obviously that could that could influence global prices for those goods. And so, um, you know, we saw that a little bit at the beginning of the war. It doesn't seem to be having an impact today. Um, but beyond that, you know, it seems to me that the impacts of the conflict have been primarily political and humanitarian. I know Adam Compton had some additional stuff to share on that, though. Yeah, no, I did. So actually, one incremental thing that has happened this week was just Russia ended the grain export deal. Um, so there is some residual risk there, right? So we saw actually wheat prices up eight or nine percent today. Will it sustain? I don't know. We've been in this environment where everybody's figured a way around whatever rules go into place, whether it's Russian oil, which which has ended up everywhere around the world, despite a lot of blockages to it that the U.S. has put up uh, grain because it's needed. You need to get it exported, right? So it, when the need is great, a way is found. So, you know, I, while we need to keep an eye on this, um, end of the day, you know, the, the disruptions haven't been nearly as massive over the long term as people might have expected, even for your, the European economy, um, which, you know, we saw a high probability of a recession last winter because energy prices were so high. They found a way through that. Um, partially with some help on government spending. And that kind of goes to my second thing that I do think we need to keep an eye on is because of the huge amount of, of money that are being spent on this war, um, as it drags on, we're well over a year into it at this point, and it doesn't look like it's going to be over tomorrow. Um, you know, we are going to, their budgets, government budgets are going to be more stressed. It's a classic, you know, guns or butter discussion. Everybody learned in economics, or maybe Michael learned it in advanced guns and butter since he went to Northwestern. But um, it's it's a it's an environment where governments are going to have to make harder decisions on social spending or military budgets, especially in Europe, where they've historically tended to underspend post World War II because of the NATO shield that they've had in place. That's all changing. And even in the U.S., um, we're not directly affected by the war at this point, but we have been shipping massive amounts of def defense stockpiles to Ukraine and giving it to them. Those are going to have to be replaced. So even in the U.S., defense spending is going to have to pick up. Even if the war ends tomorrow, you know, we're probably going to have to spend more money on defense to get our stockpiles back up, especially with things like China still looming out there. Moving on to another theme, which is AI, you know, I think this is something we get probably the most questions about right now. And you know, kind of two things. One is, you know, what does this look like to the economy as a whole and to the market? And then how, and this is what they're, where the question a lot of times comes from clients, how do we invest in AI? You know, is it through, uh, you know, public companies who are investing in it themselves? Is it small private companies? And is it a short-term phenomenon, or is this more of a is is this more of a long-term play from an investment standpoint? So I'll I'll take the first part of that, and and Compton, you can take the second part. So um, you know, as far as the impact on people and and the economy, I 100% believe that that AI is a transformative technology. So you know, we will all look back and say that this was a life-changing uh, technology, a life-changing uh, invention, you know, no, no different than the internet or, or anything, you know, like that. It'll drive productivity. Um, and, and, and I just wanted to kind of throw a few little bullet points out, um, you know, when it comes to jobs, when it comes to how, how fast AI is, is impacting people's uh, daily lives and, and how it will impact the economy. So, you know, one great quote that I read um, was that no jobs will be lost to AI 
millions of jobs will be lost to those who know how to use AI. So it's not the fact that jobs will necessarily be eliminated because of AI, but people will be eliminated from those jobs if they don't know how to properly use AI because it is going to be such an enhancement to productivity. The other thing I think people need to keep in mind is, you know, 95% of jobs from 200 years ago, if you were a, you know, if you were a buggy whip maker or something like that, those jobs don't exist anymore and they're not missed. So you know, some of the jobs that will be eliminated because of AI or because of automation were jobs that probably should be eliminated. And I don't know that they'll be missed later on. As I as we've written about in, in, in prior quarterly updates to clients, the biggest issue behind those jobs being lost is the ability to retrain the workforce to do something else, you know, and that's a that's something we've struggled with on a public, you know, in the in the public sphere in the US, but you know, private companies have done an excellent job of that. And you know, if any, if anybody wants to read our comments on it, I think one or two quarters ago I wrote, you know, I wrote about this in, in detail. Um, the next thing is, you know, if you look at sort of where in the economy AI is already having an impact, it's really an analytical thing. So you know, those who are out there calling themselves analysts in different industries, you know, they they are the ones that are probably the most currently uh, either being helped by or could potentially be um, you know, made obsolete by uh, the tech, the advances in technology in AI. But you know, on the flip side of that, and, and, and not to you know, not to minimize the humanitarian piece of that, but but to but the, on the flip side of that, the cost savings to businesses are going to is going to be astonishing. You know, the the impacts on margins um, and costs on a positive level is 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 going to be dramatic. Um, you know, the last thing I'll mention is is AI is evolving exponentially. Right, the public. I think already has been and will continue to be blindsided by how quickly AI moves into our society and how quickly it starts to transform different parts of the economy. And so I'll let Adam um, talk about kind of how and where to invest it and how we have. Great. Thanks, Michael. So, yeah, it, it's interesting because we actually have a lot of AI exposure. I could list all the stocks we own that have pretty direct exposure or sort of one level down exposure and, and that would take up a whole another hour podcast. So we're not going to do that. Yes, we own NVIDIA. Interesting for us though, we have not been building up AI positions now that this has become the hot new thing. I think we've actually net trimmed because we already have a lot of exposure in names like NVIDIA, which is one of the biggest positions in our new Aero portfolio. Um, so in NVIDIA's case, we originally built this position out, you know, four or five years ago um, after, you know, the the last time that Bitcoin sold off heavily and the NVIDIA chips were being used for, for mining um, Bitcoin, it was a great value to us, not because we were looking for a rebound in Bitcoin or because, you know, we think there's a great long-term prospect for gaming video cards, which is what NVIDIA's primary business was at the time. But what we looked at was that NVIDIA's product was actually, it's sort of, you know, not random, but effectively, you know, luck of the draw, the video graphics cards were actually really good at accelerating AI applications for businesses. So you were see, starting to see some pretty significant demand for AI acceleration on the business side. It was much, much smaller back then, as you might imagine, but we saw the potential there. We said, that's a business that we could latch onto for the long term. And we saw them as ahead of the curve. So we put the money in, we built the position up and it's worked really, really well for us over time. So yeah, we own NVIDIA. Um, we actually have taken a slight trim recently because it hit over 9% of one of our portfolios and we felt like it 
you know, cr created a, a risk management issue that we had to at least, you know, react to on some level. But there's a lot of names that we own. We do like looking at, you know, who are the arm suppliers or the tool suppliers, however you want to think about it, you know, and, and making sure we have good exposures there. And we have a lot. So, you know, companies like Broadcom, you know, people think, you know, gee, they make internet routers. What do they have to do with this? They actually make a lot of the chips for, um, for very fast routing inside data centers that that AI needs, right? So if you wanna have a really fast AI system, um, you're gonna have a lot of different processors hooked together and you've gotta be able to route that data effectively. Broadcom is a great play on that. Related to that, um, also Arista Networks um, is another sort of AI data center play that we have exposure to. Um, if you look at Corning, like, you know, old boring Corning, um, they make fiber optics. If you're adding a lot to data centers with AI, um, you're going to be using fiber optics and you're going to be using some of Corning's products. So we have a lot of names like that where we like the businesses, we already owned them, and we, we will get upside as um, AI plays out over time. Thanks, Adam. So kind of looking forward um, you know, through the second half of 2023 and, and 2024, Michael, what do we see that the pundit saying as far as kind of the the potential you know, next eighteen months and what what that what that looks like? So, you know, as as I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear, it's 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 kind of all over the place. You know, when, when you when you look at the CNBC interviews fifteen top strategists every quarter and they do a survey, and the last one they did the the targets for the S and P range from as low as 37.25, which would be about a 10% decline in the S&P, you know, up to, you know, 48, 4,700, 4,600 um, earnings per share for the S&P from $1.85, from $185 up to $230. And Evercore ISI, which does the same, it, it just, it, they interview institutional investors, not strategists, but ISI's numbers came out similar, 3,700 to 5,000 on the S&P, you know, the CPI between two and four and a half percent, S&P earnings between $200 and $260. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think, I'm not sure that anybody actually knows. I think it's, it's, it's indicative of this debate that we've been talking about, which is it all depends on what does the Fed do? And it all depends on whether we end up in an aggregate recession or if we, you know, continue to chop around, but, but ultimately have a softer landing. I, I did want to quote one statistic because I said earlier, that you know the, the 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 tide or the or the or the conventional wisdom has shifted. Um, you know, at the beginning of the year, conventional wisdom, I think 67 or two-thirds almost of of respondents to these surveys said that we would, you know, we were going to have a hard landing and that we were going to have a pretty steep recession. Um, you know, we didn't necessarily believe that, which is why, you know, we kind of remain, you know, pretty, pretty fully invested. Um, and, and now all of a sudden you have 90% of respondents to these surveys expecting a soft landing or a very mild recession. So, um, you know, you have seen that tide turn. That to us, you know, is, is a little bit concerning, to be honest, um, which is part of the reason why, you know, we have kind of, as I like to say, kept one foot in each camp, meaning that, you know, while we've been very fortunate, as Adam mentioned before, to um, experience, um, you know, 100 plus percent of the upside of the indices, so far this year in our equity strategies, we have been holding an outsized um, position in cash. And as Adam mentioned, we've also been holding some hedges in those portfolios. So, you know, some of this back and forth, you know, I think is still yet to be, you know, yet to be determined and, and yet to be played out. 
you know, which kind of falls into how MWM is thinking about, you know, next the, the second half in 2024. You know, I, I will share some of you like these investor almanac statistics. So I'll share one of them, which is um, the S&P has delivered a median return of 11% since 1950 in the final six months of the year when the index has been up between 10 and 15% in the first half of the year. So obviously the index was up, you know, close to that 15% number in the first half. That almanac statistic obviously points to a, a, a potentially uh, a potential continuation of that into into this, the back half of the year. Um, but, I, you know, but Adam Compton can certainly reiterate his point, which I think is a good one um, about the fact that, you know, we really need to pay attention. The real, you know, the real tea leaves to read here are earnings. So, you know, I'll let him, you know, talk a little bit about what we are seeing with earnings. Yeah, um, so it, I'm not going to rehash the stuff I talked about before because I don't want to bore everybody, but we have, again, first half of this year, expectations were very low and we were experiencing year-over-year -year declines, which is what we got, but companies tended to come in ahead of expectations. That does get harder second half of the year um, as we push through to much higher expect expectations with year-over-year -year growth. Um, but really for me at this point, it's going to be how do how does 2024 play out? So I think, you know, this year, valuations aren't that bad on this year's um, earnings. I don't think the earnings are going to be massively different because, you know, we've gotten far enough through the year. So the odds of a recession hitting really soon are probably pretty low given where employment is currently, right? So we'd have to hit a pretty hard wall in there somewhere to push us into a recession soon. So this year's numbers, you know, we're running right 219, I think, for the S&P right now. Um, aren't probably going to shift around too much. It's really going to be what's the change in expectations on 2024 as we start to see some of the data come in later this year. Again, the streets at 240. Um, you know, I if in a soft landing scenario, I think that number is absolutely fine. I think you know the S&P will do fine into the end of this year. Um, probably have a more a much more muted year next year um, unless we get you know, again, a big drop off in earnings expectations in a recessionary scenario. Or the flip side is, you know, if we get an end to the war in the Ukraine, um, you know, uh, oil shipments go back to full speed, inflationary pressures drop significantly, you know, we could we could see a good year next year. So that's sort of the flip side scenario of a more optimistic world. Uh, right now, like Michael said, we're going to keep our toes in both ponds, feet in both camps, however you want to think about it. So, with that, with that being said, um, and, I, and we, you know, we already talked about some portfolio highlights. So, you know, I, I think we can. I think, I think the, the next, I think the last topic, because I know we're running up on time, um, is really some final thoughts on macro allocation. You know, obviously, um, you know, where we started. You know, if you go back to 2019, uh, you know, we had started talking about rebalancing client portfolios. It, we had we had done incredibly well in equities, probably generationally. Well, in equities from you know the lows in 2009, and we talked about slowly rebalancing. We obviously hit the pandemic, and that kind of changed and altered our our, our process a little bit. Um, but starting again in 2022, we you know we have been uh, consciously rebalancing, and 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 alongside that, you know other asset classes have become more attractive. Obviously, with higher rates, you know one of those things is fixed income has become a lot more attractive. You know if you're sitting on cash before you were earning zero. And now you're earning five percent. That's obviously a lot different capital allocation decision. So, Adam Abramson, I'll ask you um, for some macro allocation thoughts to kind of you know drive us toward our conclusion here. 
Yeah, I, I think we've talked about some some sexy topics like AI and, and other things, and now I get to be the the downer here, which is I think I think this is when when markets are doing as well as they are, this is the time to stay disciplined, right? To to go back to to making sure you know we're we're staying in line with with our targets, our targets that we rebalanced, like Michael said in the last few years, that we're going back and revisiting our financial plans. The great thing is, you know, now unlike you know, before when really equities were the only game in town, you know, you have actually positive returns being generated by other asset classes. And so, so, you know, that's a good thing. And there, there, there are other, um, uh, you know, there's other opportunities. So, you know, there's alternatives, which we've talked to many of our clients about, and, and we, you know, we see a lot of those opportunities, but we take a lot of time to make sure we do our due diligence and, and they're uh, appropriate from a, you know, from a risk and return standpoint. And one thing, you know, always for, for all of our clients is making sure we're we're generating appropriate risk-adjusted returns, not just absolute returns. So, you know, that's something that we always keep in mind. And and it's interesting, you know, this year, you know, I'm starting to hear people, you know, have a little bit of FOMO in that, hey, you know, you know, why aren't we 90% in stocks, or why, you know, why don't we own 20% of the portfolio in Nvidia? And, and you know, last year was the opposite, right? Last year was you know, we all have short-term memories, was incredibly painful with the market down, you know, 18%, but but big parts of the market, uh, kind of the grossier parts of the market down 30 plus percent. So it's a time where, you know, it's nice to have positive returns, but to, to stay disciplined and make sure we're, we're sticking to the plan that we, we've laid out over the, number, over the last number of years. Yeah. You know, look, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I, I think that, you know, it is nice to have access to fixed income markets today and you know, be able to fill those allocations with bonds that are yielding 4%, 5%, you know, 6% in some cases, and, you know, feel real good about having a slug of the portfolio in fixed income. Whereas in the past, you know, that, that's that's sort of been one we've had to choke down if we've done it at all, you know, based on, on, on there essentially being no return in that asset class. You know, another asset class, obviously, we, you know, have a lot of exposure to is real estate um, and other alternatives. And, you know, while that has become an increasingly large portion of our client allocations and it will continue to do that, you know, based on our conversation about commercial real estate and, you know, the refinancing that's going to go on there and probably the amount of supply and, you know, a little bit of price resets that are going to go on in that industry, you know, right now it seems like a good time. If you want to invest in real estate, it seems to be a good, a good time to invest on the debt side of real estate, but maybe, you know, kind of press pause on the equity side. And uh, you know, make sure that, as you said, Adam, the, the, those opportunities are very selective. So, um, you know, I, I think those are, are good. I think those are good takeaways for for everybody here. So, you know, let's let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, I, I had a I had a quote um, that I wanted to share. You know, again, I think the sum and substance of all of this, and uh, you know, we appreciate your attention. Um, it's a lot of information to cover, uh, but uh, you know, there the we're, we're in a changing environment. And you know, and and we always talk about the fact that while you know we will certainly uh, monitor change, we will certainly adapt where necessary. We will be defensive and flexible when needed. You know that doesn't change our overall outlook, right? And which is that uh, you know our goal is to help our clients obviously achieve their financial goals, to help them pass wealth uh, efficiently and effectively down to next generations, um, to satisfy their philanthropic desires. Um, et cetera. And, and, and the way we implement that on the investment side is to own the highest of high quality assets that we can. So whether those are public businesses, private businesses, whether that's real estate, real estate debt, um, et cetera, you know, we're, we're always, we know that if we own the highest of quality and we've done our due diligence, 
um, you know, that those are going to be the assets that are going to help us help clients achieve all those goals. So the, the quote I'm going to leave you with um, is one by Maya Angelou, which says, quote, I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. So you know, we will not be reduced as far as our conviction in our investment philosophy or in our conviction and our passion into helping our clients solve, you know, complex financial problems. But for sure, you know, these the environment changes enough where, you know, the complexities of it do, you know, weigh into our, you know, to our mindset and we are keeping track of those things. So again, you know, we really appreciate your attention and time. We hope this was valuable. Please reach out with feedback. Let us know if the podcast in, uh, format for our quarterly uh, updates is a, is, a, is a better one in your opinion. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on our next uh, podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. For more information on Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker-dealer and investment advisor duly registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.